invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19 is where we were at. The Old Testament reading is our text for this morning as we walk through a few weeks in the life of the prophet Elijah. In the way that Moses was raised up by God to deliver his people through an exodus, so Elijah is raised up to deliver this generation of God's people through a a new exodus or a a new type of exodus. What's just happened recently in our text, chapter 18, is that God has delivered His people on Mount Carmel where God's fire descends to destroy false worship. Elijah's prophetic work defeats the prophets of Baal. His sword slays readily. And his prayer brings rain. But great victory for Elijah is is soon followed by a a deflating defeat, it seems. See, when Moses descends the mountain, remember he meets the golden calf in idolatry. Well, when Elijah descends by himself the mountain, worn and dejected, weary, alone, yet he remains faithful. What? He's rejected by those he comes to save. He he meets with more and more violence. So Elijah, who is a member of God's council, he flees that place to meet with God, seeking a trial on Mount Sinai. He needs justice, doesn't he, Elijah? He desires vindication and God's verdict and, and God's deliverance. It will indeed come. Judgment will be rendered Though as we follow the life of Elijah, we see that he doesn't necessarily see it fully meted out. I think the book of Hebrews describes well the heart of Elijah's life and ministry when it says of him and other heroes of the faith, it says, and these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Commended for their faith. They didn't receive what was promised. And yet, Elijah persevered. He continued to entrust himself to God's grace. He held fast to God even when he, Elijah, couldn't see the way. And it seems this is the heart of Elijah's life, and this is also the heart of anyone who deems to follow Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Draw near with your spirit to teach and to conform us more into the image of your Dear Son, in whose name we pray these things, amen, amen. So you read this passage, and I think we're asking ourselves, well, how do you hold fast to God? How do you hold fast to Jesus uh, and His truth when you can't see the way? Elijah, like Moses, he didn't receive rest in the land that was promised to God's people. Elijah worked for but never witnessed a revival of God's people and faithfulness to His covenant. And yet, Elijah held fast to God's Word. Often we can't see, often we don't receive from God what we think we need or hope we can have. And so, how do we hold fast when we can't see the way forward? Right before the action in our text, God has has won the decisive battle against the prophets of Baal and the god Baal. Uh, defeating the foreign god at Mount Carmel. The, the corrupt king Ahab is, is, is defeated, and he's got the tail between his legs as he, as he goes down to his, his wife Jezebel. But instead of a victory parade, look at what Elijah meets. We'll read from the end of chapter 18. 
Verse 46, starting there. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Ahab's wife, Jezreel. Ahab told, or to Je- Je- Ahab told Je- Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more so also, if I do not make your life as the one of them by this time tomorrow. There's the hero's welcome that he's looking for. Yay, you won. But we're going to kill you now. Israel and the land had known drought for three and a half years. There was famine of food rampant, famine of God's word. The land was left desolate. And now the foreign gods, which the people have been bowing down to, are defeated Elijah prays. God hears him, and he sends rain. God opens his clouds, the rain clouds, when he receives word from his council member, his prophet, Elijah. And the image that we have at this point, there's like a cleansing that's going across the land. There's a refreshing and a renewing. It's a vindication of God's name over the the God's Baal. King and country alike should be resounding in joy and rejoicing. There is victory in the land, but here Ahab, the king, he fails to repent once again. And he runs tail between his legs to hide behind his idolatrous and and wicked wife, Jezebel. And Jezebel threatens God's prophet, and her threats are never in vain. Verse 3 and 4, after she threatens him, verse 3, then Elijah was afraid. He rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba which belonged to Judah, left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father. Two notes on the context here. Elijah has been up north in in the kingdom of Israel and outside of the kingdom of Israel. Back in Israel, he's defeating the, 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 uh, on Mount Carmel the, the gods of Baal, and now he, he goes down to Jezreel. But then he has to walk all the way down to the very southern part of Judah, almost the outskirts or the very border of the promised land. Second thing to note is that he's entering wilderness. And what do our ears think of? What does our imagination get fired up when we hear the word wilderness? Exodus, right? Wilderness wandering. What should we expect for God's people after He delivers them? What we know of Israel after the the exodus from Egypt and what we know from Jesus after He ascends the waters of baptism, right? What do they both encounter? A wilderness. It's a long journey for Elijah, first to Jezreel up north and then to the southern border. Wilderness is long and barren, and, and Elijah is fleeing for his life, it says. Now, is, is Elijah merely preserving his skin? Is, is this long and, and barren journey just to preserve his life? Or is it more like he's got to preserve God's word? He really believes that there is no other prophet alive. Commentators are mixed. Most think, most think he's shirking his responsibility. But I think we should pause before we condemn his actions here as a shirking of responsibility. It seems to me he's rather flying to meet with God. He is a council member in God's council. He's seeking a place in God's chambers. God's prophet is seeking God's presence. 
And this journey seems a lot like Israel's journey in the wilderness. This is, could be Elijah's wilderness testing. In the wilderness, Israel failed time and again, time and again. Following God's deliverance, the time of wilderness is a time to test, a time to try, a time to mature and grow. It's a practice in holding fast when we don't know the way. We're not given answers. It's a way to hold fast. Verse 4 at the end reads this way, Elijah asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is no better. I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on a hot stone and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down. Again, what indicators do we hear of the Exodus here? We have the, the, the language or the song of the Exodus ringing throughout Elijah's life. Of course, you've got him in the wilderness, and he's wandering, he's weary. And we see an angel brings bread from heaven, just like for Israel. He's journeying in verse 8. It says here that the, the food that he ate strengthened him for 40 days and for 40 nights until he went to the mountain of God, which is Mount Sinai. Mount Horeb. We should hear that God is sustaining His people, His faithful people in the wilderness as they are undergoing a new exodus. It's a little bit startling, isn't it, to read verse 4? Elijah asks God to take him, take my life, end it. And it's, it's startling, it's jarring. Is this a desire to simply escape the suffering of this cruel and unforgiving world? Would anybody blame Elijah? Or is this another Moses when he was faced with uh, un un insufferable odds here, asking God to blot him out rather than the people? Or not just, I can't take this life and ministry without you. If we're to go on without you, O oh God, it's better just to take me now. Whatever his motive, whatever the request uh, the reasons behind this request, it's clear. It says, take me, take my life. I cannot see going on this direction, this way, if you're not here. I'm done. Now, the thing about this is that Elijah's never criticized for this in Scripture. He's always, instead, commended for his faith. And so, I think we do well to ask what's going on here, to taste a little bit of the fatigue that he's experiencing to enter into the sorrow of, of such pain and disappointment, which marks his life. But I think we should be slow to condemn this request. Some understand Elijah's heart-wrenching request intimately. Others maybe cannot relate. But I think what follows after this ask is a little bit of a help, a pointer at least, in holding fast to God in the midst of great sorrow, near despair, at least a way to hold fast when we can't see the way forward. The second part of verse 8 reads this way, that Elijah went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What, have you, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? He's risen now from his respite, so to speak, and the, the food and the water sustained him in this long journey, and now he goes to a cave. And whenever we have a man of God enter a cave, it's a kind of death, isn't it? It's a kind of dying. It's the image of a man who is going into his tomb. There is a, a symbolic dying here for Elijah. 
but where will it lead? And God, it's not a condemnation here. It's not that God lacks information. He's God in asking this question, Elijah, what are you doing here? That question is the invitation for Elijah to enter into God's counsel. Verse 10 and 11. Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. He said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. What we have is the prophet of God, who was God's council member, entering into council with the living God. This is a type of lawsuit going on here. There's a covenant lawsuit. When God asks, what are you doing here? It's an invitation to present Elijah's case before God. And his case is simply this. Elijah's case is simply, hey, I'm innocent. I've had zeal for the Lord. I've been faithful to his covenant. And all of this is in contrast to the people who forsake your covenant, seek to extinguish your word and your prophets by the sword. The previous chapter tells us Jezebel's been running rampant and slaying prophets left and right. Whether he... Elijah speaks hyperbole or he really believes he's all alone. He continues in faithfulness to God and his covenant. And God will give his case a hearing. The end of verse 11, and he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Does this remind you of somebody in the Bible going up to the mountain and the Lord passes before him? Doesn't it kind of remind you of a guy we just talked about for a long time, Moses? Elijah is ascending Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and he's placed in the cleft of a rock, and the Lord passes before him. Court is in session. Elijah has access to the presence of God. Now, no face of God is seen, but only the effects of God's glory descending on a mountain. The power of God's glory produces this great rushing wind. The infinite weight of his glory causes the earth to quake as he descends. His glory is a consuming fire and it rages forth, and yet the scriptures tell us that, that the Lord was in none of these. The descent of God's glory cloud brings these phenomena, and yet the Scriptures tell us that God is present in none of these except what? Except in His Word. Now, there is some debate about is this a still small voice, or should it be translated quite the opposite, a tremendously loud voice. The Hebrew seems to be able to allow both of those. And there's a lot of debate on that, a lot of conversation about that. Whole theologies are built upon the still small voice but I, I wonder if we kind of miss the, the main emphasis with Rust here, if we're looking at volume. Isn't the emphasis here that God is present in His Word? And so I think we do well to, 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 to rest in that mystery, but, but say, hey, God said, the Scripture says He's present in His Word. Elijah had been God's, has been God's prophet, His very Word to God's people. He has established his life and ministry upon God's Word. He is sustained in God's Word. And he will be vindicated in God's word. Yahweh, who is the God of armies, is not dismissive of Elijah as he seeks to enter in. And nor is God unsympathetic 
He doesn't seem displeased with Elijah, but he calls Elijah forward from death into life. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper, verse 13, and when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him, and he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? All right, somebody hit the rewind button, didn't they? We've been here before. This is the same thing that God just did while, Moses, while Elijah was at the foot of the mountain. And he's asking the same question. And as, Moses, or as Elijah ascends this mountain, he's like Lazarus, in, you know, ex- exiting the tomb. Bright sunlight of God's glory, blinding newly resurrected eyes. So Elijah wraps his face, exiting his cave tomb to meet with God. Who invites again? What are you doing here, Elijah? Come on in. Tell me. Give me your case. God hears from his prophet a second time. This is a a second witness to the truth being shared here, being told. Verse 14. Again, we've read this verse before too, haven't we? Exactly the same thing Elijah said earlier. I have been very zealous for the Lord, verse 14, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left. They seek my life to take it away. Elijah states this case a second time. Having borne witness once, he gives second testimony. And he's got a threefold accusation, and the first is this, saying, I have been innocent, faithful to God's covenant. And implied in that is yet my life is being sought. Where are you? Secondly, Israel, he's saying, has adulterated the covenant relationship with you, God. They've been decimating altars to you. They have been worshiping false gods. And thirdly, he accuses them and says, here's the situation. They have murdered God's prophets. They are seeking to extinguish your word. They're seeking to kill even me. Now, we know that God has hidden other prophets and that he will leave 7,000 faithful to the covenant, but it is only Elijah that we see here in the council of the living God. Now, what's interesting about this in my mind is that there's no request voiced. What does Elijah ask God to do here? We don't hear a request. There's no direct verdict given either, but God the judge commands Elijah the plaintiff this way, verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. The glory of God descends on the mountain to dwell with Elijah, and the glory of God will go before Elijah as he descends the mountain and goes back up north to continue the battle against evil. God's mighty rushing wind that was felt on the mountain will now take the form of Hazael, a king over Syria. The mighty earthquake that would shake the land takes now the form soon of Jehu, who will be king over Israel. Both of these will be given to shake God's people and destroy the wicked. And finally, God's Glory, fire, his consuming fire will take the form of Elisha, the prophet who will succeed Elijah, the one who will consume as well as cleanse in the land. Only 7,000 faithful will remain in the land, 
Israel doesn't need a lot of enemies to invade them. They can destroy themselves fine amongst themselves. God's people fight one another and are destroyed. And in the mystery of God's providence, this is his doing. Elijah is indeed a new Moses who was leading his people through a new exodus, who receives God's covenant promises on Mount Sinai and is sent forward to walk with Israel in God's judgment of wilderness wandering. He is to walk with Israel in the wilderness. And what does that mean for him? Can he imagine a way forward? What will it look like? Whatever it looks like, he doesn't know, but what do we see? He goes. He rises from that place, descends the mountain, and walks into the wilderness with a people who will continue to despise him, reject him, and try to kill him. He walks in faithfulness, but he doesn't know the way. God will judge. Though we may not see it in our time, we continue to wait for it in faith, in trust, and in hope. In his justice and wrath, the wicked will be condemned. No, Elijah will not see the demise of Jezebel with his own eyes, nor the dynasty of King Omri. And no, I don't imagine God's word on the mountain relieved his suffering a whole lot in the moments. They didn't answer all of his questions or provide that deep rest which we long for, that lasting rest in this life. Yet God called him from a tomb to ascend to the mountain and then depart in his service. Now, as we look at his life, it, it does remind us there is a time for rest, for divine refreshment. What Elijah was experiencing was a need for rest, and God provided it in unexpected ways. We will know seasons where God has to provide, as it were, bread from heaven and water from the rock, a deep and lasting rest which mere time off cannot get you. So we look to Elijah and we find a man who's weary with his work, weary with his worry, but also we see a man who is cared for by God in unexpected ways. If God rested on the seventh day, should we not find rest as well and find our hope and our rest in Him? So there is a time for rest. And there is a time to press on in zealous service in the name of Christ. Seldom will we get full answers, any more than Elijah gets answers from God here. But we walk and we talk with God as we hope. So we look at Elijah's life and the encouragement, the exhortation is to not lose sight of God's provision. Even when grace seems sparse and goodness scarce, we trust that as he has provided, he will provide for our needs still. We continue to hold fast to his word. The only word that Elijah receives from this mountain is to rise and to go. Tells him where to go here. There's no big plan for what comes ahead that Elijah's aware of. There's no five-year vision. There's not even an attaboy, Elijah, keep up the good work. It might seem so unsatisfying, and yet God, at God's word, we see Elijah obey. He follows, and he goes. Hold fast God's word. Don't lose sight of his providence and his provision. And know that you labor not alone. We're called only to play our part, to equip and encourage others in their calling as we seek this same God. Part of Elijah's despair had to be the fact he felt so alone. 
We will work alongside the righteous as well as the rascals, and God will use us all to build His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. People of God, you do not labor alone. And then we pray also with Elijah, God's will be done. It seems the best thing we can give our children as we walk forward in this life is a very optimistic view of the future, which is really strange following 2020. But either we believe it or we don't, that God is sovereign and that He is good, and He's reconciling all things together through Jesus Christ, and that His victory, which we taste in part now, is secured in Christ, and that one day we will taste it finally and fully as every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We trust His sovereign hand is mighty to save, that He is generous with His grace, that God will provide. So just know that you're not alone, that you labor not in vain to walk in the sovereignty of God, trusting He is reconciling all things to Himself through Jesus Christ, renewing all things through Jesus Christ. But you also got to be faced with the reality that, no, we may not hear the whisper of God. No, we may not feel His mighty shout either. We may not feel the rushing wind or the, the quaking of His glory. But neither again do we have to ascend Mount Horeb to meet with God. No, our ascension is through a different mountain, one who is Jesus Christ. He is the one to whom all nations will stream. The one before whom all peoples will bow and bring their tribute and offering to Him. Now, that ascent asks us nothing short of everything. From Elijah's life, we see there was the widow's hunger, and the death of her son was asked of her. From Elijah's, a hard-fought victory to endless rejection and threat on his life. The entire person, for widow and prophet alike, is required. So for every dishwasher or doctor, athlete or academic, young or old, conservative or liberal, consecration to God requires utter and complete faithfulness to God and His covenant with the whole self. Elijah was weary with sorrow, so much so that he was inviting death. He was oppressed by those he was sent to deliver. He had given everything, and it still didn't seem like it was enough. And then to top it all off, Elijah never saw God's full and final victory. And yet, what does Scripture tell us about Elijah? Elijah awaited God's vindication by faith. Elijah is commended for his faith in awaiting God's vindication, though he never saw it fully come. He awaited a better and lasting inheritance. And so our task is much the same, to walk in faithfulness to God and His covenant promises, seeking God's face to condemn the wicked, to vindicate the righteous, and we are then to go in the grace of God into whatever mysterious future He calls us to, entrusting ourselves to Jesus Christ in the ministry of His Holy Spirit. So hold fast to your rock the mountain that is Jesus Christ, especially when you don't know the way. He is patient and kind, 
He is slow to anger, and He is abounding in steadfast love. And He promises to never leave us nor forsake us, for in Christ we have a better and lasting inheritance. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for Your Word, and we thank You for the life of Elijah. Teach us now from him and his life what it is to follow Christ and to trust him in the moments that we live, whether it's in knowledge of what's coming or not, whether it's hard to trust or easy, O Lord. Give us your grace to conform us to the image of your dear Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.